Um, I ask you if you've got your Bibles to turn to the book of Ruth. We're going to look there this morning. As Jody said, I am a graduate here. It's always good to be back on campus. Every time I come on campus, I'm amazed about what the Lord is doing. Great friends here. Um, the friendship I have with, with uh, Dr. Gene Fant is, is special. I really appreciate him and his leadership in our state. Uh, Dr. Nathan Finn who took busy time out of his day to come and hear me this morning, which means more than he can possibly imagine. Uh, Dr. Steve Krause, uh, Jody, everybody is just uh, great friends here. One of my heroes, um, Dr. Walter Johnson as well, who probably forgot I was, doesn't have chapel or didn't even come or anything. Um, but it's always good to be back here. And, and as we look to the word this morning, as Jody said, we're going to talk about hope and what that means for us. Not just do we have it, because I hope that each and every one of you know what it is and you have it. Now, how does it, what does it mean for us and what does it mean for our lives? And so I want to talk about that this morning. One of the best pieces of advice I ever received um, as I was coming to seminary, or excuse me, North Greenville, was that you should take your summers and do mission trips. And so after my freshman year here at North Greenville, I went to my first mission trip in 1995. I'm going to go ahead and date myself. That was back when Jody had hair, or at least on his head. And um, so 1995, we uh, take off, and I go by myself to meet a group in, in Moscow, Russia. And so, for those of y'all that may or may not know, the Communist Party had fallen in Russia. The Soviet Union had dissolved in around 1990, 91, if you will. So, 95, the country had opened up for the gospel. And it was really an incredible time and opportunity for the gospel to get into places it was not able to get into before. And so, here I am at 20 years old, and I'm heading my first trip, you know, really outside of the South and I'm headed into Moscow, Russia, and I am, and you'll find this out about me if you get to talk to me at all, I'm an extrovert by in every way imaginable. I'm processing verbally, I'm meeting people, every person I see on the street, I'm just saying, hey, what's up to? That's a normal thing for me. When I get to Russia, there's this difficulty I have. Communism had fallen, and it was disappeared, but the people were just depressing. The place was kind of sad. I didn't realize that Russia's on the same latitude as like Canada. So that's the furthest north I've ever been, furthest north I've ever been. And, and so it was kind of a sad and depressing kind of atmosphere. And I'm walking down the street and nobody's smiling. Nobody's even making eye contact. Nobody's looking at me. And I am getting frustrated. I mean, at the time, all I really knew about Russia was Ivan and Nikita Koloff. You can look them up. And Ivan Drago had gotten beaten by Rocky in 1984. And so I didn't know much about it, and I was sitting there thinking, this, here I am, I'm in this place that's kind of different, it's a new place for me, and it was just depressing. It was dreary. The people were sad. And, and as I said, that just got to me. So I asked our Russian pastor who was there, I said, hey man, what's up? What's going on with people? And he just looked at me and said, Josh, uh, Russians are a people without any hope. There are people without any hope. Through years of communism, through years of, of that oppression that it put on them, they didn't know what their, where their hope was found. They didn't have any gospel. They just didn't have any hope. And what you're witnessing is what a country looks like with no hope. So we traveled. I was processing that. We traveled to our first city for ministry, uh, overnight train ride. 
Uh, side note uh, there, I met somebody on the overnight train ride from Wisconsin. Their, their accent was so bad, I thought that was another country. And then we are, we are coming through, and we finally get to our first place of ministry. And we get to our first place of ministry, and we're off the train headed, headed there. I don't know if you've ever been on a mission trip like that, but you just jump in. So we're off the train, and we're headed to the church. And they said, we're going to a church service. They're waiting for you. We got there, and the closer we got, and in Russia at the time, every building looked the same. Every apartment building looked the same. It was just kind of dreary everywhere you went. And then when we got close to the church, we heard singing. And it was different. And we started walking in. And there when we got within eyesight, you could see the people waiting outside for us, singing and waiting. And I walked up. And now they had, they had given us orientation. They told us what to expect, what not to do, how to, what hand gestures don't, you don't use, and that kind of stuff. So I'm coming in, trying to mind my business. And, and we step in there, and, and they're singing, and then everybody just starts hugging, right? This is pre-COVID. So everybody just starts hugging, and they're hugging on you. And I greet this one older gentleman. And when I say older, I mean he was older. He barely could get up, was walking with a cane. He had about three teeth in his mouth. And so I'm greeting him, and I knew that they kissed each other on the cheek. That's how you greeted one another in church. And so I'm prepared, and this old man reaches up with this huge, just huge gummy smile, and he looks at me, and he grabs me by the neck way down, and he pulls me in, and he kisses me on the cheek, you know, like this. And I said, man, I got it. I'm, I'm half Russian already. What I didn't realize was this old man was old school, and so he was planning on not just kissing me on one cheek, but on the other cheek also. And so as I go to pull back, he's got a firm death grip on my neck. And he goes to the other side. So in the midst of this, I French kiss an old Russian man with three teeth. I'm talking slobber from here to here. And I hear laughing everywhere. Everybody's witnessing this. And Peter, the pastor, just this belly laugh, walks over and puts his arm around this old man, and he said, Pastor Josh, this man has hope. And I knew exactly what he meant. There was a difference here in the ones who had hope and how they lived and how they expressed their life and what they put their trust in. And you can tell this vast difference between those who believed and those who did not. Thomas Brooks, famous divine, said, hope can see heaven through the thickest of clouds. And so what I want to do this morning is I think this through. Now, again, I was a student in your seat. Chapel was a little bit more narrow. The seats were way worse back then. But I was here, and so I'm thinking through what is it, what is it that I could offer up? What is it that I could give? And I don't know who necessarily needs to hear this, and I really don't know which way I'm going. But what I'm going to tell you is what I want you to see this morning. Every single one of you know that the clouds are thick right now. In our world and everywhere we turn, everywhere we go with what we have to deal with, and the very fact that chapel looks like this. The last time I was in here, every seat was filled. The place was packed. But the fact that it looks like this reminds us that the world has clouds that are really, really thick at this moment. And so what we need to do is we need to see heaven. 
We need to understand what is there and where our hope lies. And in order for us to do that, in order for us to do that, I want you to turn with me to the book of Ruth. Now, I'm, I'm, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but we're going to try to do it in the time that is allotted to me. The book of Ruth is an important book in our Bible. The book of Ruth is one uh, that many have called the greatest short story that has ever been written. The book of Ruth is one that is full of twists and turns. It's full of, it's full of different ways. You don't know what it's, This could make a great movie with several different major scenes in it when you come to the book of Ruth. But I think what we'll see when we come to the book of Ruth is we're going to see somebody in Naomi who lost all hope. She had no hope. And what happens to her when she loses all hope is she just begins to sulk. She gets depressed. She gets angry. She doesn't do anything really. She sits back as the victim and doesn't make any plans and doesn't hope in anything and doesn't look to anything. But then what happens in chapter two is everything flips and she's given a little bit of hope. And so after that, we see what happens when hope comes in. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. If I had a passage that I would just get you to turn to and, and read, uh, it would be at the end of chapter 3. At the end of chapter 3, um, and we'll, we're gonna, I'm going to tell you all the whole story. If, if anything else, I want you to know the story of Ruth this morning. At the end of chapter 3, Ruth is told by Boaz to go back to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Naomi says in verse 18 of chapter 3, Wait, my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. That idea of waiting in hope is what I want us to think of this morning. So if we can, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll look at three simple things that hope teaches us. Father, we thank you so much for bringing us together and allowing us to gather here in this place. Father, you are good and you are kind. And, and just as we sung earlier, Father, you are the living God. And there in, in you we have our hope. Father, remind us that the very joy that we have in gathering here this morning is found in the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. Remind us, Father, that this morning at its very essence is a celebration of the resurrection of our Savior. Remind us, God, that every promise that has been given to us has found its yes and amen in him. And remind us again, Father, that with, apart from Christ, we who could do nothing also have zero hope. And so, Father, help us this morning to know what it means to hope in you and to follow you. Apply that hope to our lives. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Ruth begins with, In the days when the judges ruled. Now that puts us in a context, and if you look, the previous book in our Bibles, the English Bibles that we have, is the book of Judges. And so just to kind of give you, without going through the whole book of Judges, uh, give you the synopsis there, it's the last verse of the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. The last verse before we get to the book of Ruth, it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now it says in those days, but you can only imagine that we could probably add in these days as well. 
But Ruth is putting us in context. The days when the judges ruled, when there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So that gives us the context of it. Now when Ruth starts, the book of Ruth starts, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. The book starts with this dilemma because... In the days judges ruled, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. We see continually that the Lord brings judgment upon his people for not trusting in him. And this judgment comes here in the land of Bethlehem. Now what this literally says, if you want to know, is it basically says the the name Bethlehem means house of bread. So here when it says there's a famine, there's no bread in the house of bread. And so ultimately now, there's no bread in God's house of bread. So there becomes the dilemma. Now Naomi... and her husband, husband Elimelech have an option here. God had already promised them that he will take care of them. God always keeps his promises, right? God had already promised them that he'll watch over them. And that promise was tied to them trusting in him and following after him and pursuing him. And that pursuit was tied to this land that was given to them. And so Elimelech comes and there's no bread in the house of bread. What Elimelech probably should have done, just to go ahead and let you know, is he should have sought repentance from the Lord. He should have thrown himself at the mercy of the Lord. He should have sought to trust in the Lord even more, seeking after the Lord in all things. But Elimelech makes a different choice that the world may think is wise. Since there's no bread here, let's go somewhere else. And Elimelech heads off to Moab. Moab of all places. Moab, the people of Moab began through an incestuous relationship hundreds of years before. The people of Moab had pursued after Israel to defeat them over and over again. When they're marching through the wilderness, the people of Moab are constantly trying to deceive the Israelites and cause them to not follow after the Lord. It's the people of Moab, the king of Moab, that hires Balak, you know, and, and Balaam, who, who comes and wants to bring curses to Israel. These were people that hated God's people, hated Israel. So Elimelech is taking off to Moab. This is not just Elimelech looking for some bread. This is Elimelech stating his belief. He was making a belief choice. He was not believing that God could care for him. God could watch over him. He was trusting in the people of Moab to do that and somewhere else. So what Elimelech leaving here is an act of unbelief. And when he goes, he goes with his wife Naomi and their two sons. When they get there, the two sons marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. They marry the Moabite women. And before long, Elimelech has died. Uh, Malon and Chilion, those are cool names, Malon and Chilion have passed away, and Naomi is left without a, a husband or any male heir in her sons. They didn't have any children, and all she has left by the time you get to verse 5 is her two Moabite daughters-in-law. That's all she's got. And so now she's lost everything. Naomi is upset. She hears that there is bread back in Israel again. She hears that the famine is over. So she says, it's time for me to go back. She makes this statement to her two daughters-in-law because she don't want them. She doesn't want any part of them. She says, y'all need, I'm going to release y'all from your covenant relationship with this family. You can leave and you can go back to your family. By all means, head out. Y'all can go on. Orpah's like, I don't want to go. Yeah, you still need to go. And so, yeah, okay, I'm going to go. And so Orpah kisses her. 
her and heads off. And then Ruth is standing there. And Ruth says, I don't want to leave you. You've got to leave me, Naomi says. I'm a bitter woman. And the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. The last thing you need to do is be a part of this. I'm headed back. In reality, Naomi didn't want to take this Moabite back to Israel either. And so here, at the end of Ruth uh, chapter 1, Ruth makes one of the great, greatest commitment speeches in all of Scripture. I mean, it really is. These two verses are incredible. Here you have this Moabite daughter-in-law looking to her, her uh, Israelite mother-in-law. Her Israelite mother-in-law is ready to change her name because she's bitter and mad. She don't want any part of her. She's ready to do all this. And this Moabite girl looks at her and says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. This is verse 16. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. A statement of commitment to the God of Israel, Ruth has. The God that Naomi's trashing because she says that he's dealt bitterly with her. And Ruth says, your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Naomi gives this incredible speech. If this is like a movie, this is scene one, right? She gives this incredible speech. And you see Naomi's reaction when Ruth gives this speech. You see her reaction. It says in the next verse, And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. In other words, Ruth gives this incredible speech of commitment. Naomi looks at her and just turns around and walks away. Naomi heads back. She can't do anything but take Ruth along with her. She won't leave her. Naomi gets back, and the Israelite women start talking about him. Is that Naomi? You know it is. Naomi says, don't call me that. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, which means sweet or good? Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabiter, daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Here is Naomi. She's bitter. She's angry. She's lost everything. She's upset. She doesn't even want Ruth with her, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with her. She could not even really see the blessing that she had right beside her. And at the end of chapter 1, we find her sulking. She was a victim, a victim of what God had done. And people who are victims have little hope and very rarely make plans. Ruth got up and went to the fields. And she is going to seek to make something good out of this. So in chapter 2, that's what happens. Naomi's just sitting around, nothing going on. Ruth says, i got to go get some food. She gets up, she goes to the fields, and there it says she happened upon the field of a man named Boaz. Now, we know what this happened upon means, divine coincidence, providence of God. God is taking care of all this. She happens upon a field of a man named Boaz. And she goes and Boaz treats her very kindly. He cares for her. He gives her some food. He watches over her. He protects her. It's dangerous for her to be out there in the open like that without any protection. He protects her, says, stay close to me, gives her food, invites, him to, invites her to his table and says, from now on, you come to my land. I will give you food. I will take care of you and your mother-in-law and at the end of the chapter nay uh ruth comes back and 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 i always make a joke here this is how you know this is how you know like a man wrote the book of ruth or something because it's like the how what what happened it's just like yeah he was nice to me you know what i'm saying because like if it was never mind y'all get that later when you're married 
And so he's like, this is, this, yeah, he was good to me. And, and Naomi just all of a sudden flips a little bit. Why is this? Because she hears this name, Boaz. He's been kind to Ruth. And he told Ruth that he'll take care of her, just keep coming back to this place. And Naomi says, Naomi says, listen, go out with his young women. Go out with him. Take care of him. For this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, without time to go into what that means, it just simply meant the Old Testament scriptures made provision for those who were widows and without any male heirs. And that provision was the closest male relative could redeem that woman who was a widow and bring her into the house and help provide her with a male heir. That's what the kinsman redeemer was. And so Boaz is a close relative. Now we'll find out he's not the closest, but he's a close relative. And so now Naomi starts to perk up. She was distant. She was depressed. She was angry. She didn't know what. She was kind of listless just sitting around the house. Ruth had to go out and do some things. And now Ruth comes back and says, I met Boaz. He's a redeemer. And now Naomi perks up and says, oh, this is good. He is a redeemer. Let's do something about this. And this is where it shifts. This is where it shifts. Naomi was bitter and mad, pouting like a victim, but then hope kind of creeps in. And chapter 3 begins with hope bursting onto the scene. And as always, hope emerges. And when hope emerges here, so does action. As one commentator said, a man or woman full of hope will be full of action. When people have hope, then we see what happens. And so here's what I want to do. I want to take this chapter 3 and I just kind of want to see what happens whenever hope enters in for Naomi and Ruth. I want to see what happens because what that does and what that's going to help us do is that's going to teach us what hope means for our life as well. Whenever hope comes for us, it's going to teach us what hope means for us and how we apply hope. We don't often think about applying hope to our lives and how we live, but hope, just like faith and love, those three go together, right, Paul says, how we apply that to our lives and what it means for us and how we live. And I also think, if I was a college student, and I, I, I was for a long time, but if I was still a college student, this is the kind of message I think we need to hear now even. So I pray it would sit with you because the first point is this. Hope allows us to make a plan for our lives. Hope allows us to make a plan for our lives, not to live recklessly. And when you're in college and you're getting ready for your life, it's important for you to recognize that what you need to know is that you can't just recklessly make your way through this. You need a plan for your life. And because you have hope in what is coming, you can make that plan. You can build that strategy. Naomi was angry and, and, and depressed. That was obvious. But here, as she returns, everything becomes right again. And as soon as she gets some hope, she begins to make a plan. And that's what you see in the first five verses of chapter 3. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, All right, we got this redeemer over here, Boaz. We need to get his attention. My daughter-in-law, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe 
the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all you say I will do. So Naomi comes up with a plan. And Naomi tells her, here's the plan. You need to go take a bath first. Now, just go ahead and let y'all know that is a absolutely good advice. You go, you take a bath, and then he not only says that, you put on your best perfume. Anoint yourself. Go clean yourself up. Take a bath, put on your best per perfume, and put on your best dress. Put on the cloak. You get ready because you're going to make an impression. This is, this is Naomi making a plan how can ruth get boaz's attention if he's the redeemer how can we get him to propose the redemption if you will which is basically proposing marriage here's how wash yourself put on your best perfume put on your best dress go watch what he does when he lies down you go to where he's lying down and then he you uncover his feet now don't let your mind get too crazy right there we'll talk about that but the point is, when hope comes in, Naomi has a plan. She builds a strategy. Naomi wants Ruth to have a husband. She wants a secure future. She wants a family line. She thought all that was over. She thought all that was done. But now she has some hope. And this is clear. Put on your best dress. Wash yourself. Put on your perfume. Go wait for him. And then you go to him in the middle of the night. That's clear for her. What's not real clear is why did she choose this plan? This plan seems like it places Ruth and Boaz, uh, for that matter, in a, a compromising situation, doesn't it? She's going to him in the middle of the night, uncovering his feet. And here is again where I think it's important for us to talk about the fact that we as believers have the freedom, and hear me when I say this, we as believers in Christ who trust in the sovereignty of God have the freedom to take risks with our life for the glory of God. We don't have to sit back and be scared. We don't have to sit back and wonder. We can go and do things with a plan and a strategy knowing that God has got us and he's watching over us. Either way, when we trust in the sovereignty of God, we have hope. And when we have hope, we have a plan. Here, Naomi gives her plan. Now, it's important here. What I do want to add is, is Jesus, uh, whenever he's teaching his disciples and he's sending them out you know he's sending them out and and he he tells his disciples i need you to do something when you go out i need you to be as wise as serpents what jesus is saying is you need to have a plan you need to recognize what is around you you need to know what's going on you need to be wise when you go out with your life and not reckless so you are to be wise as serpents and here here naomi demonstrates what that looks like she knows we got to get boaz's attention we've got to do this so we've got to make a plan so let's make a plan let's build a strategy let's be wise so it is for your life really ultimately as you go through these years here, what this does for you is it equips you for the future. It equips you for what's coming. You're preparing yourself for whatever, uh, whatever um, vocation you may be in. You're preparing yourself for whatever you're going to spend your life doing. But even more than that, even more than that, you're preparing yourself for how you're going to use your life for the glory of God. And in that, you must have a plan. 
build in a strategy. And the hope that we have in the Lord allows us to build a plan for our life. We're not sitting back just wondering what may happen, what may go on. We don't think everything's going to cave in. Even when something like a pandemic hits us, it doesn't shake us or cause us to fear and tremble with what God has in store for us because we have a God who is in control. He is watching over us, and we have a plan to pursue after him with our life. So be as wise as serpents. Be as wise as serpents. But then number two, hope presses us to live lives of righteousness to live righteously because Naomi's plan seems a little wonky a little bit I mean she's like basically putting Ruth and and at risk go into this man who's happy and he's loving life and he just had his harvest and he just had a party to celebrate it and now he's going to sleep sneak up beside him and uncover his feet while he's sleeping y'all I don't know what reaction that may bring from any of y'all but if somebody did that to me even now I do not know what I may do And here is Ruth thrown into that situation. So Naomi is throwing her into that. Say, here's the plan. Go do it. And here's what I love about Ruth. Ruth agrees to the plan of Naomi. She agrees to go. But Ruth was not just going to do what Naomi said. Naomi's plan left things completely in the hands of Boaz. He will tell you what to do, Naomi said. But Ruth, Ruth diverges from that. She tells Boaz plainly her intention. Boaz comes up. You see what happens? uh, When Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Here, Ruth speaks plainly of her intention. While this scene and situation could have led to unrighteousness, if you know what I mean, Ruth is going to handle this righteously. She's going to do this in the right way. She's not just putting it into Boaz's hands. She's taking control of the situation here. Her goal was not one night stand for Boaz to trick him into a lifetime of watching over her. Her goal was a commitment, a commitment to marriage. Her goal was not just one moment of passion, but a life of righteous living with Boaz forever. Her goal here was in uncovering his feet to make a proposal to him to redeem her. Now, this language of uncovering the feet seems kind of odd for us, and it really is. I mean, just go ahead and be honest. But it's not foreign in Scripture. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, the Lord is talking to his people. The Lord's talking to his people, and he says to Israel, and you know how the Scripture kind of puts how God is married to his people. You know, So he, he, he'll, he'll judge them, but he won't divorce them. He's married to them. He's made a commitment to them. And the Lord says to his people whom he's judged, he says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. In other words, this idea of, unco- of covering with her wings or covering with his wings over her is the idea that Ruth is saying to Boaz, I need you to marry me. 
I'm not looking for a one-night stand. I'm looking for a proposal of marriage, for a commitment for a lifetime. In this passage in Ezekiel, the Lord takes the action. But in our passage, Ruth does. And she takes the risk. She goes to Boaz. She puts herself in this situation. But she states clearly what she desires from Boaz. Ruth takes the initiative. I want to be your wife. I don't want anything else from you but a commitment for marriage. Ruth's plan demonstrates a dependence upon the Lord that she wants to act in righteousness, not just for her future. If Ruth wanted just for her future to cure this thing, maybe she could have acted unrighteously, cheated Boaz into doing something, but that's not what her desire was. She wanted to act righteously. And why is it? Because she had hope that she could be redeemed. When Jesus sends out his disciples, remember, he said, be as wise as serpents. But, but do you know what the second half of that is? Be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. We make a plan, we build a strategy, but we also come at it with a full understanding that we must act righteously before the Lord. In our plans, we always act righteously. Why is this? Because ultimately, our hope is not dependent on our strategies. Our hope is not dependent upon our plans. Our hope is dependent upon the Lord. You can devise the greatest of strategies. You can make the biggest of plans. But it is the Lord that brings them about. Our hope is found in Him. So we don't act unrighteously. We act righteously. Hope in and of itself causes, calls us to live holy. I want you to hear what I'm saying. Sin, as an action or thought, is a practical display of a lack of hope. Sin, as an action or thought, is a practical display of a lack of hope. You think that this moment and this action is going to gratify you and satisfy you. You think you need it now. You think you have to have it at this moment. But in reality, that instant gratification is only damning you more and more. Where our hope lies is not in this moment or in this place, but in the one who is holding it for us in heaven. And so I wish that many times, I wish somebody, I'm not blaming anybody else because it was me, But at the same time, we often look at sin as just action for the moment. But sin is an act of unbelief, like Elimelech leaving the land. And sin is an act of or a lack of hope in the one whom we trust. In the one whom we trust. We think right now is more important. Success in our plans is more important. So we tend to cheat and steal and deceive because we hope in our plans. We compromise our righteousness to get what we desire. Ruth could have done this. She could have seduced Boaz at this moment. But while she had a plan, she also serves a God. And her hope is not in that plan, but in the God who rules over all. Now, I am truly a, a, a child of the 90s. The 90s was the best, period. I mean, I'm just saying and the greatest Christian singer ever lived, don't at me on this, was Stephen Curtis Chapman. And Stephen Curtis Chapman had this song, came out in 1994, as I'm coming to North Greenville, heaven in the real world. I'm coming to North Greenville, and this album comes out, and it meant everything to me. And I never will forget, because I memorized every word on the whole album. Still on Spotify, Amazon Music, feel free to enjoy the 90s. And at the beginning of it, it has Chuck Colson. 
Chuck Colson was a politician who was one of three who were arrested after Watergate and thrown into jail. Got saved in prison, started prison fellowship, became a pastor preacher. And so here, Chuck Colson is preaching there. And the song begins with Colson preaching. And he asks this question, where is the hope? He says, I meet millions who tell me they feel demoralized by the decay around us. Where is the hope? The hope that each of us has is not in who governs us. Praise God after last night, right? It's not in who governs us or what laws are passed or what great things we do as a nation. Our hope is in the power of God working through the hearts of people. And that is where our hope is in this world. That's where our hope is in life, he says. And that sticks with me because our hope cannot be in the strategies. It can't just be in the legislation. It can't be the people we put in office. It can't be holding on to what we hold dear here just simply as Americans. Our hope as believers is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And why? Why would we forfeit our relationship with him for some momentary satisfaction that this world offers and is fleeting and is gone? We trade our true and living hope for a counterfeit hope over and over over again and we display that with our lives so hope calls us to live righteously hope calls us to pursue after holiness finally so i gotta end hope hope pushes us to trust in the lord for our future we don't look for instant gratification i read that verse at the end of chapter three i read that verse where ruth comes back and says let me tell you what boaz says boaz our redeemer Boaz told me, I'll take care of it. Boaz basically says to Ruth, you will be redeemed. There's one who's in front of me. I'm going to go ask him. If he doesn't want to do it, I will do it. But you will be redeemed. And she comes back and she tells Naomi that. And Naomi says, wait. Let him do his work. Here in this, we recognize, we recognize that our Redeemer is not Boaz ultimately, but Jesus Christ our Lord. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done his work. So our kinsman redeemer has already come. The one who is closer to us as a brother. The one who has redeemed us, purchased us, and secured our future. The one who has given us an inheritance and has promised us it will never fade away. It will never perish. It will never die. It's better than the gold of this world. It's better than the silver that this world gives. It's better than any satisfaction that you can imagine. Because moth can't destroy it and rust can't fade it out. Because this inheritance we have in Christ is forever held by him. And so he's given us this. And so ultimately, our Redeemer is not Boaz, although I want my son to be like Boaz. Read this book. He is incredible. I want my daughter to be like Ruth. I want them to emulate them. But ultimately, we don't read the Old Testament as a good moral lesson for us and say, be like Boaz, be like Ruth. We read this to say, look at the Redeemer who has come to save us. That is where our hope is. That is what it lies in. Not in this world, not in anything this world has to offer, but in him and him alone who is resurrected and reigns. So we look to him. And at the end of the book of Ruth, you go this winding route here all the way through this story. It's one thing after another, one twist, one turn after another. But then it's like coming down a mountain road and all of a sudden it opens up to see the scenery of all of God's redemptive history. And we find out why the book of Ruth even is in our Bible to tell us from Ruth is coming one who will be David the king. And from David the king is coming one who will be king forever. 
If it wasn't for Ruth's righteousness, then we wouldn't have Christ, the Scripture tells us. If it wasn't for Boaz's faithfulness, then we wouldn't have Christ. Ruth and Boaz were just living for the Lord, and look what the Lord did with them. So just live for the Lord in hope, righteously. Make your plans. Pursue after Him. Take the risks because He's sovereign and in control. Make your plans. Live righteously for Him and trust Him. That's how we take hope and apply it to our lives. That's how we take it and apply it. Throughout this pandemic, for the first time in my life, I'm preaching every Sunday, and then I'm not. Right? And so that started wearing on me, you know? It started wearing me out, and you get, we made it through Easter, and that was cool. We did this stuff for Easter, but then after Easter, I just started just feeling it, the burden of not being able to gather together with the people, longing for them, hoping for them to stay, to stay connected, to stay there. And, and on Sunday mornings, we would get up, and, and um, I've got one son who sleeps late, and you've got to scream at him 20 times. i got a, a daughter who's just kind of doing her thing. But then i got that one son who's an overachiever and up early every morning, washed and ready to go. You know what I'm saying? So it was me and him sitting in there waiting. And on repeat, over and over again, I just kept playing the song, I Will Wait For You. Shandy Shane, Psalm 130. And that verse says this. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. Here's the truth for us this morning. Here's the truth for us this morning. Just as Naomi said, just as Naomi said to Ruth, he will redeem us. Wait. So it is for us as believers. We wait. He's coming back. Wait. He's coming back for you. Wait. The redemption that you know now will be fulfilled and realized then, right? What you have already will come to you in the future as well. And what you know in part now, you will know in full then. Wait. And while you wait, make a plan for your life to use it for the glory of God and live righteously before Him and trust Him for anything that may come. Because His promises are true. He has not failed us yet. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you for the hope we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. May you, God, grant us, grant us a clearer, deeper, more glorious vision of what that hope means. May we see every single day the fact that our Savior is alive. And we wait for him to return. And as we wait, I pray for each and every student in this room, watching online, however it may be. I pray, God, that you would help them to apply hope to their life to make a plan for your glory, to live righteously before you, and to trust in you for all things. Thank you for the hope we have in our Savior. Thank you, Father, for your word this morning. We will wait for you. And while we wait, we will hope in your word. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. You're dismissed.